We're reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. In your pew Bible, it's page 1029, 1029. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. If you're anything like me, typically on Sunday mornings, you start getting hungry around this time, and you're sitting there hearing Mel read. You hear about the hidden manna, and you're wondering, I don't know what that is, but I could go for some right now. Yeah. And we might just learn what it means. Well, have you ever made a deal with someone that ended up not being a very good deal? Something you quickly realized you had the losing end of it. Maybe you purchased a car off of Craigslist, and you quickly realized that that car was a lemon, and there's a reason you got a great deal on it. Maybe you bought something from the store, and you brought it home, and it didn't work. I think one time I needed an air compressor for, to put air into the tires of my car, and the one thing that air compressor couldn't do was put air in the tires of my car. It's a bad deal. Maybe uh, you're a sports fan, and you've made a bet with one of your friends who's a fan of a rival team, and you bet if your team won, they'd have to wear the jersey of your team, and if your team lost, you'd have to wear the rival team's jersey. And you thought for sure, we are going to blow them out in this game, and lo and behold, next week, you're wearing a Cowboys jersey to work. <laughs> Not a good deal. Or maybe you've played Monopoly, and you traded Boardwalk, so that you could get those two purple properties and $500 in cash, and before long you've landed on boardwalk that has a hotel on it for the second time, and you're now mortgaging all your properties. You realize, man, I made a bad deal. Well, history is also full of bad deals like this, and one of them, perhaps one of the greatest, is the Munich Agreement of 1938. Now see, in the 1930s, Hitler had come to power in Germany, and was rebuilding Germany's military strength. And throughout this time, Hitler believed that all ethnic Germans should come under the rule of Germany, whether they lived in Germany or whether they lived outside of Germany. So what happened is uh, Hitler began absorbing some other countries into Germany. So he started with Austria. He absorbs Austria into Germany. And then he turned his eyes to the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, where three million Germans resided. Now, as Hitler's plans became apparent, some of the world leaders recognized that we need to do something about this to avoid another world war. 
So Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Britain, along with other world leaders, rushed to meet with Hitler to broker a deal, to find a way to avoid another world war. And this is what they decided. They decided that if they could have peace in Europe, they would allow Hitler to take a little bit of Czechoslovakia so that they could appease him. They offered somewhat of a compromise. They allowed Hitler to gain a little bit of ground if it meant peace for the world. Chamberlain was so sure that they had managed to find a peaceful resolution that the day after they met, he returned to Great Britain and had a speech announcing peace for all of Europe. And if you want to look at it, you can actually find it on YouTube. Now, even though we might not know this particular story, we know what happened next, right? Britain thought, well, we've got peace. We've avoided another world war. But within a few months, Hitler had invaded Poland, and World War II had begun. It began with giving up just a little bit of ground, and it ended with more damage than Chamberlain could have ever imagined. We'll see the church at Pergamum, the church we're studying here in Revelation, they find themselves in a situation that's not all that different. While they're striving for something good, they're striving for faith in Christ, we see that they've begun giving up some ground to the enemy. And as we look at this compromise that Pergamum is making, we see that Jesus is also warning us about the ground we may be giving up to the enemy. And so we're going to look at a few things here. We're going to start off by looking at the culture of Pergamum, because we need to understand where are they living and what's going on there. We're going to transition to their confession. We see that they are confessing Christ, and we want to commend them for that. Then we're going to transition and spend a good amount of time looking at the compromise they've made. And we're going to see that Jesus despises compromises. And then we're going to conclude with the consequences, the consequences for those who compromise and the positive consequences for those who conquer. So let's dig in and let's take a look at the culture of Pergamum. The first thing we notice here is something very specific that Jesus says about where they live. Look at with me in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he says later, he concludes that verse is, you live where Satan dwells. Well, what does that mean? Well, it probably doesn't mean that Satan has a physical throne set up in Pergamum, but there is a metaphor there. And there's a, a few reasons Jesus might have said this. Scholars think that there were several pagan temples located in Pergamum. So idol worship and all the things that went along with idol worship, the feasting, the drunkenness, the sexual immorality, all of that was very present there in the city of Pergamum. Some scholars think that um, a specific cult, a cult to the god of Asclepius, was located there. He was a god of healing, and his symbol was a serpent. And so you think Satan was often characterized um, with a serpent throughout the, the scriptures, so perhaps um, he's uh, drawing a parallel there. One other thing that factors in here is that Pergamum was one of the oldest centers for Roman emperor worship. And remember, Revelation is written to churches that are under the persecution of Rome. And so perhaps Jesus is getting to this desire for the culture to make all people worship the emperor. Now, as I mentioned, 
It's probably a combination of all three of these things. But what we do know is that there was plenty of pagan, idol, false worship going on and all the things that went with that. So this wasn't just you go to church on Sunday, you sing a few songs, hear a sermon, and then you go home. This was big, grand banquets, feasts. Feasts that were filled with food sacrificed to idols, feasts that had prostitutes. It was sinful, uh, debauched worship, we might call it. And see, Pergamum's residents, they were expected to be involved in all of these traditional feasts and idol worship. And so for those who did not worship in this way, it affected them in a few ways. It affected them socially. So it was very clear if you weren't present at that banquet or at that um, feast for this false god, you'd be a social outcast. People would choose not to be friends with you. They would kind of push you to the margins. But it might also affect you financially. See, in some cases, some of these banquets, there was business that was being done there. And so if you weren't a part of these feasts honoring false gods, you missed out on opportunities to cultivate your business. You missed out on financial opportunities. For some, it cost them their life. And we see that later on in Revelation 2, that some lost their lives because they refused to give in to the worship of Pergamum. So we see here very clearly, the culture of Pergamum was against Christ. The culture of Pergamum was against everything that Christ stood for. And the culture of Pergamum was against Christ's followers. So that's the, that's the setting of this church. That's where they're living. And it's important to note that this church, while we see that there's some problems that we need to work out, they were confessing Christ. And that's the second point. We want to look at their confession. See, the church was surrounded by pressure to conform to the culture. And yet they held fast to Jesus' name. They did not deny their faith in Jesus. And you see that in verse 13. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even faithful witness who was killed among you. We see here that even when members of their church were being killed for their faith, they did not deny their faith. They held on to it. The church at Pergamum confessed that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Now think about it. We get used to hearing about persecution, um, especially you think of the early church. We get used to hearing about some of the, the struggles and trials that they went through. But imagine if that were us. Imagine one of, our own, one of our own were killed because they refused to deny their faith in the Lord. That takes a lot of dedication to be killed for your faith, right? And so although Pergamum has their issues, although there's compromises they're making, we see that the church is commended for their steadfast faith in Christ. But not everything was perfect. Not everything was peachy in Pergamum. As we continue to read the letter, we see that the church at Pergamum, they also grieved Christ's heart in their sinful compromise. They grieved the heart of Christ. Now, how do they do that? Well, this compromise... It was not a new one to the people of God. If you read the scriptures, you see very similar compromises being made all throughout. In fact, it references something here in the Old Testament. Verse 14 says this, But I have a few things against you. 
you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So in order for us to understand the compromise that Pergamum is making, we need some background information on uh, this story here with Balaam and Balak. So we're going to flash back for a little bit and go back to the Old Testament and figure out what's happening there. So some of you perhaps have heard the name Balaam and Balak, and you're thinking, I've heard that story before. I can never keep straight who's who in the story. And I remember there's a talking donkey in it, right? That's the story. That's usually the main thing we remember is the talking donkey. So I'm going to lay out the story. We've got three characters. One is Israel. These are God's people. They've recently been freed from captivity in Egypt, and they're wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So they're one character. Second character is Balaam. He's a a prophet, a Gentile prophet, who uh, you can think of him as some sort of like diviner. He would bless people. He would curse people. People would pay him to do his his sorcery, uh, his sorcerer's work. And then the third character is the king, Balak. And that's one reason it's so confusing, right? You have Balaam and Balak. I'm going to refer to Balak as the king to separate him out. But one way you can remember him is his name ends with a K. King starts with a K, all right? He's the king of Moab. So as Israel is wandering in the wilderness, they come up to the nation of Moab. Now you have to remember, Israel has thousands and thousands of people. They've got cattle, all sorts of animals, and they're a strong military power there in the Middle East. So they're wandering through the wilderness, and they come up to the nation of Moab. Now the king sees this, and he's concerned. He's heard about what Israel has done to other nations in the area, and he's concerned that perhaps they may consume resources that Moab has a right to. Perhaps he's concerned that Israel may overthrow Moab um, and defeat them through some kind of battle or war. Balak knows, the king knows, that there's no way for him to defeat Israel through military strength alone. And so this is what he does. He says, I've heard of a guy named Balaam, and pay him a little bit of money, and I'll pay him to curse Israel, to weaken them, so that either they uh, will wither away, so that I could defeat them through uh, battle. Um, So he brings on Balaam to curse Israel. So Balaam comes in, they have some conversation, Balaam prepares to curse Israel, but in his preparation, the Lord visits him and commands him to not curse the nation of Israel. And so there's lots of back and forth over a few chapters in the book of Numbers, uh, conversation between the king and Balaam. But ultimately, Balaam decides not to curse Israel, and rather he blesses the nation of Israel. That's kind of the conclusion in that section of Numbers. And so we look at that and say, well, what's so bad about Balaam? What did he do wrong? Well, if we look at the next chapter in that story, we see something interesting happen. Although Israel had been blessed, we notice that they're now under God's judgment. Why is that? Well, we find out later in the scriptures that Balaam, after this whole conversation about blessing and cursing, he goes back to the king and says, hey, I've got an idea. I might not be able to, bl- I might not be able to curse the people of Israel, but I have a way that we can trip up the people of Israel. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to take your best food. You're going to take your best wine. 
Uh, you're going to take your best party planners, the ones that plan those raucous feasts honoring the false gods. You're going to take prostitutes and roll them out to the people of Israel. He says, place a stumbling block, something that will turn Israel's gaze away from, their, from the Lord into all the things that the Lord has commanded them not to take part in, to not worship idols, to not um, sleep with prostitutes, all of those things that are associated with the pagan worship. So Balak rolls that out, and the people of Israel stumble. They give themselves to idol worship. They sleep with prostitutes. They eat all this food that God has commanded them not to eat, and the Lord judges them for it. In fact, we see that 24,000 people die as a result of their disobedience. God judged Israel because they compromised, right? They gave a little bit of ground to the enemy rather than giving their whole heart to God himself. So that's the background to the story. And Jesus is saying, hey, remember what happened to Israel back with Balaam? Some of the same things are happening here in Pergamum. Jesus is saying that there are those who are leading the charge, who are tempting people in the church to compromise their faith. What do I mean by compromise? I mean that there were people in the church that were giving ground to the enemy. There were people in the church that were going to church on Sundays, but then when the debauched feasts, when the idol worship came up on Thursday night, they were there too. There were people who were giving themselves to sexual immorality. There were people that were worshiping false gods. And Jesus is saying, there are some of you in the church that are leading people to do that. And so that's the primary problem here. There are those that are tempting the people of Pergamum to give themselves to this false worship. But it's not, it's not only that, right? You have people that are leading the charge. But if there are people leading the charge, that means there are also people following them, right? So there are people that are participating in the pagan worship there in Pergamum. And then there's a third category, which I think is the church broadly. You have a church that's allowing this to take place. There are those in the church that are misleading people into compromise, and nothing is being done about it. And so Jesus is saying, you are tolerating compromise in your church. You are giving ground to the enemy, and I despise that. Jesus says, I despise compromises. Jesus absolutely hates when we give part of ourselves to him and then part of ourselves to the enemy. Now, why is that? Well, part of that is because Jesus is holy, right? We sang about that earlier. Jesus tolerates no sin. And so when his people muddy themselves in the sin of the world, he hates that for his people. But it's more than that. Jesus despises compromises because think of what it does to his people. See, Jesus knows what is good and what is best for us. And when we give ourselves to the enemy, when we start giving a little ground and letting the enemy kind of speak into our lives, Jesus knows that that is a world of hurt that we are submitting ourselves to. Jesus wants all of us. He doesn't want any ounce of us going to what the enemy has for us. But what might some of those compromises be? 
you know, we're probably not tempted to go to the pagan temple down the street and eat food sacrificed to idols, to sleep with prostitutes, things like that. It's not, that's not the norm, right? There are certainly things that happen, but that's not the norm. So how does this apply to us? Well, I think there are a few ways that we give ground to the enemy. And I think there are two categories. Some of that is broad, and some of that is more subtle, more personal. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take one thing that's probably a pretty hot topic. Think of sexual ethics, right? So at a, at a, uh, when we think about our culture, what does our culture believe about sex? Well, the culture believes that sex is a human right. Every human has a right to sexual pleasure in the way they see fit. So that means whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, whatever you want, the culture says, you do you. As long as you're not causing harm to someone else, go for it. We also see our culture is starting to press in when it comes to matters of gender, right? So rather than being male and female like God created us, we see gender fluidity. And that leads us to some difficult, complex situations, right? Some of you probably experience that at work. You have someone who is born a man, but now has pronouns of she and her, and you're wondering, how do I deal with some of those things? What do we, what do, we do when we're faced with these complex situations that our culture throws at us? Because often, we're bigoted for holding to the Christian sexual ethic, right? Well, I'm not going to go into every single specific situation and how to deal with that, but I would recommend, if you have questions about dealing with some of those things, last year we had a mini-conference called Love into Light, and that's recorded on our website. And so if you're looking for more tools to know how to answer some of those questions and deal with those complex situations, I'd recommend checking that out. But what I really want to get to is not, not just the, the broad kind of opportunities for compromise, but what are some of the subtle ways that we give ground to the enemy? If we think about it from sex, we can think, well, I'm not going to commit the big sins. I'm going to do my best to not have an affair. I'm not committing adultery. I'm giving that part of my life to Christ because I'm being faithful to my, my spouse. And yet sometimes we give the enemy ground. We let lust take root in our hearts. We look porn. We flirt with those who are um, co-workers. We give ground to the enemy by letting him taint our minds with sexual fantasy. See, there are ways that while it may not be the big sin, we allow other sinful thoughts and actions creep into our life. How else does this play itself out? Maybe it's at work. Maybe broadly, we know that we shouldn't steal from our employer, right? We know that we shouldn't berate our coworkers. And yet for some of us, while we may not steal dollars, perhaps we steal time. I know, especially for those of us that work from home, I struggle with this, it's easy to just kind of let time go by without really putting in a lot of hard work. We give a little bit of ground to the enemy to let laziness take root in our souls. How else do we let this play itself out? 
I know one, one way for me, I love reading God's word, but I also love to sleep. And I know for me, if I don't wake up early in the morning and read the scriptures, I know that it's difficult for me to make that a priority throughout the rest of the day. But it's so easy to hear that alarm go off and say, you know what, just 30 more minutes and I'll, get to my, I'll start my scripture reading tomorrow. It's just subtle ways that we let the enemy gain a hold of our heart, right? It's not a sin to not read your Bible in the morning, but I know for me, I'm prioritizing sleep, I'm prioritizing comfort over goodness that the Lord has for me. Perhaps it's substances. You know, there are those of us that rather than going to the Lord and relying on him, we now rely on substances, whether that's alcohol, pain medication, drugs. And we say, you know, I can quit at any time, but I just need a little bit to kind of get me through the day. And of course, there is a time and place for medication for things that help us. But we have to ask ourselves the question, am I relying on that substance as my, my main hope, the main thing that I need to get through? We have to ask ourselves the question, where are we giving ground to the enemy? Where are we allowing him to take root into our hearts? It may be some of those things that I mentioned, or it's probably something that maybe popped up um, as you think about it. So what do we do about this? What is Jesus calling us to do when we find ourselves compromising? Well, the application is very clear. You can see in verse 16, there's two words. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. See, Jesus is calling us to search our heart, to examine our heart and see where we are giving ground to the enemy, to see where he is taking inches and feet and yards of our heart and go to him, go to the Lord and repent. How do we do that? Well, I'd first encourage you to pray. See, there are so many ways our heart can deceive us that there are probably ways we are compromising that we're not even aware of. And so I would encourage you to go to the Lord and ask him to search your heart, to look into your heart and point out areas where you're giving ground to the enemy. We need the Spirit's help to see where we are compromising. Then, when um, the next step in that process, after the Lord has shown us where we are compromising, we go to the Lord and confess. We confess that we have given ground to the enemy and say that to the Lord. Perhaps we confess to a friend or a brother or a sister or a family member to, help, to allow someone to help us work through that. We confess and then we turn away. The Lord is calling us to turn away from that sin and to him. Because that sin, while it may bring pleasure in the moment, we know that it's not going to offer true satisfaction. See, the thing with compromise is that rarely are both sides pleased. Rarely are both sides satisfied. Think of it like this. Um, when Kelsey and I were first married, sometimes we'd watch movies and uh, the way we would pick a movie is we would just like work together to figure out, okay, what kind of movie do we want to watch? 
Um, and, you know, it takes like 45 minutes to pick a movie because there's so many options. You throw out different genres. Well, let's watch a rom-com. Of course, my choice always. Um, and uh, it takes a long time. And often, we'd watch a movie and we're like, eh, neither one of us is really all that satisfied because we had to find somewhere in the middle. And so we decided we're just going to take turns picking movies. Um, and that's actually been a lot of fun. But the, the reason I bring that up is because usually when there's compromise, both sides of both parties are not completely satisfied. Well, the same is true when we make spiritual compromises like this. See, we're giving some of our heart to Jesus, and we're giving some of our heart to the enemy. And Jesus says, I despise compromises. I want all of your heart. And the enemy is saying, I don't want you to have anything to do with Jesus, and I'm going to take more and more ground in your life. You think about Hitler, he took more and more ground. He was not satisfied. Well, the enemy will not be satisfied with just a little bit of our hearts. If we give him an inch, he's going to take a foot. And if we give him a foot, he's going to take a yard. And before long, he has taken miles and miles of our soul. If you think about those who were leading the charge in the church of Pergamum, those who were tempting other people to compromise, it probably didn't start by them getting up in front of the church and saying, hey, why don't we hit this party next week? It probably started by them seeing, hey, that looks kind of fun over there. And then the next week saying, I'm just going to hang out. I won't even eat any food. I'm just going to see kind of the, the, the festival, see the celebration, see what it's like. And the week after, they're saying, that steak looks pretty good. I might try some. And then before long, they're sleeping with prostitutes and they're giving themselves to temple worship. They're giving their heart to the enemy. That's how compromise works. It works just a little bit at a time. So what do we do about this? We repent, but why should we repent? Why is the Lord calling us to himself? And why is it better for us to repent? Why isn't it better to have some fun, to, to give some ground, to live a little? Well, the Lord makes it clear as he wraps up his letter to the church of Pergamum. He gives us the why for repentance. He reveals both the consequences for the compromisers, and he reveals the consequences, the positive consequences for the conquerors. Look here, verse 16. He says, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. See, Jesus makes clear that for the compromisers, there will be judgment. Now what's interesting is in the Old Testament, Balaam, who was the one who tempted the people of Israel into compromise, uh, we see that he's actually threatened with a sword. And then we later see that he is killed by the sword. He is judged by the Lord and he is killed in battle. And so I think there's a connection here. Jesus coming with the sword and Balaam's fate. Now, Jesus isn't promising the same physical fate. He's not saying for those who compromise, they will be killed by the sword. But I think there is a spiritual reality at play here. Jesus is saying that that same spiritual fate of judgment, it will come to those who fail to repent of their compromise. But this warning, it's not just for the ones leading the charge. It's not just for the ones that are saying, hey church, why don't we go to this party? It's for the ones that are following them in that lifestyle, 
And it's also for the church as a whole that's tolerating this kind of living in the church. Now we ask the question, well, how could, how could Jesus do that? How could he bring judgment upon the church that he loves? Well, we remember that Jesus made it very clear in his preaching that there would be those that appeared to be followers of him that truly were not followers. There would be some that would say they did many works in the name of Christ, and Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. For those that live a lifestyle of compromise, the Lord will discipline. For those of us that continue to allow the enemy to gain ground, we can expect the Lord's discipline in our life. Especially for those whom he loves, he will bring us back to himself, sometimes through difficult discipline. But that's not the only consequence. That's the negative consequence for the compromise, the compromisers. But Jesus offers positive consequences for the conquerors. And this is what I really want to focus on. Because this, these offerings for those who conquer, it's not just for those of us, um, it's not ju- just for the people that seem really spiritual. It's not just for the people that have been going to church their whole life. In fact, for those of you here who have never even repented of sin, who have never trusted in Christ, these positive consequences, they're offered to all of those who repent of their sin and who turn to the Lord for salvation. So what are they? Well, when we look at it, if we look at verse um, 17, the second half, it says, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Like, how could these be good things? Because I have no idea what he's talking about here. Well, Jesus is offering some incredible things to those who conquer, to those who repent and trust in Christ. What does he offer? Well, first he offers a filling meal. It's that hidden manna, a meal that satisfies See, Jesus is contrasting this hidden manna with the food that was eaten, that was sacrificed to idols, the food that was given in, the, in idol worship. Jesus is saying, that food that you've been eating at those parties, it's not going to last. Sure, it might taste good in the moment, it might fill you up for a few hours, but you're going to be hungry again. You're going to go back next week, you're going to be hungry again. You're going to go back the week after, and you're going to be hungry again. Jesus is saying, I have food for you, that will satisfy. I have food that will fill. What's so interesting is this, this metaphor of hunger, it's something that we're, we're familiar with to some of us that have been in the church. We've heard this metaphor before, but it's all throughout the culture. Think of some songs that refer to it. You think of Bruce Springsteen's Hungry Heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. A song about somebody pursuing new experiences and still having a hungry heart at the end of all of them. Think of a more recent song by Florence and the Machine called Hunger. I'll read some of the lyrics. She says, I thought that love was in the drugs, but the more I took, the more it took away, and I could never get enough. I thought that love was on the stage. You give yourself to strangers. You don't have to be afraid. Then it tries to find a home with people, or when I'm alone, picking it apart and staring at your phone. 
We all have a hunger. We all have a hunger. Interestingly, she comments about why she wrote this song, and I find some of her comments really interesting. She says, This song is about the ways we look for love in things that are perhaps not love, and how attempts to feel less alone can sometimes isolate us more. She's saying there's, there's things we look for to fill us. Some of those things may be the ground we give to the enemy. We expect them to fill. We expect them to offer acceptance. And yet they leave us empty. They leave us lonely. She says in this song she was trying to Trojan horse a really big, potentially totally unanswerable spiritual question into a pop song. It's really interesting. I think it's really um, intuitive of her to understand that. And I agree with her. It is a spiritual question that requires a spiritual answer. She goes on to say this. Because if you don't know what's going on and you don't know what to do, you can dance about it. To all jump into a ball pit of sadness together seemed like a fun thing to do. Friends, this is life without Jesus. Jumping into a ball pit of sadness together, knowing that you have a hunger and not knowing how to satisfy it. But hey, you can dance about it, right? See, friends, to the conqueror, Jesus says, I know you have a hunger and I have exactly what you need to satisfy it. He says this hidden manna is the only thing that will satisfy your hunger. But what is it? What is the hidden manna? Well, you'll remember manna in the Old Testament, it was bread that came from heaven. It was what sustained the people of Israel as they wandered throughout the wilderness. Hidden is a little bit more tricky to understand. There are some different thoughts about it, but what I think it means here is it's something that will be revealed in the future. Something that, while we get a taste of it now, will be fully revealed down the road. And what might this be? Well, many scholars think that this is a reference to the feast at the end of the scriptures, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus says this about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, for the conqueror, for those who trust in Jesus, for those who repent of their compromise, Jesus says we will be there with him one day where we will never, ever experience hunger again. But it doesn't stop there. Jesus also offers us a symbol of innocence. He offers us this white stone. Now, what's the significance of the white stone? Many ancient courtrooms, a white stone signified acquittal. It signified that someone was not guilty, that they were innocent. Now think about this. Jesus offers the conqueror a white stone. And I, when I picture Jesus 
handing me that white stone. I see the white stone, but as it leaves his hand, I see the scar from the nails on his hand. It reminds me that so much more went into me being declared innocent than just Jesus handing me a white stone, right? It reminds me that like the church at Pergamum, I am a sinful compromiser. That is the story of all of us, right? We've all given ground to the enemy through the sin that we have committed. We are all compromisers in need of one to rescue us from our sin. It reminds me that rather than receiving this white stone, they ought to put me in handcuffs, take me off to death row. But what does it also remind me of? I'm declared innocent because Jesus already went to death row for us. Jesus went and took our punishment on the cross. He was beaten, he was bloodied, his hands nailed to a cross so that one day he might tell us that we are not guilty, but that we are innocent, and that we might live with him forever. See, Jesus, through his Through his perfect life, his death and resurrection, he allows for all of us compromisers to become conquerors. And that is the way. The way is through repentance and faith in Christ. But it doesn't end there. We see that those who conquer are given a new name. Now, God has been promising his people a new name for generations. We see it all throughout the scripture, this promise of a new name. What is that name? What's the significance? Well, we see here um, in Isaiah 62, you can see it on the screen. It says, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name at the mouth that the Lord will give. So God is promising that we'll receive a new name. He continues, Isaiah 56, 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. See, Jesus is saying for the conquerors, there is no fear of being cut off, that we will be with him forever. But what is that name? You know, my name is Justin. Does that mean my new name is going to be Justinian when I get to heaven? Well, I don't think it's like an arbitrary name like that. I think think Jesus is getting at something very specific. We see in Revelation 3 a little bit more context. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. See, Jesus is marking us all with his name, saying that we belong to him. He goes on in Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see his face. He's talking about us. We'll see his face, and his name will be on our foreheads. Jesus is saying that for the conqueror, for the one who repents, for the one who has faith and says no to compromise, they will be marked by my name because they will be my people and I will be their God. G.K. Beale, a commentator, he gives a little bit more context about what this new name, what it means. He says, to be given a new name was an indication of a new status. Therefore, the reception of this name by believers represents their final reward of being consummately identified and united with the intimate end-time presence and power of Christ in his kingdom 
and under his sovereign authority. See, when we are given a new name, we are now identified with Christ. We are no longer called enemies, but we are sons and daughters. The enemy can no longer say, Justin is mine. He can no longer say that any of you are mine, but rather, Jesus looks at us and he says, mine. So God is calling us to give our whole heart to him because he is claiming us for himself. He offers satisfaction. He offers innocence. And he offers a new name where we might be with him forever and ever so that we might worship him and be satisfied in our worship of him. May God give us grace to say no to compromise. And may God give us grace to be conquerors as we continue to repent and believe. Jen Starkey will come now and um, pray a prayer of application. Let us pray. Uncompromised, holy, and perfect King, we confess that we fear the complexity of warfare. We confess that we love the ease and comfort of compromise. If broadly we take others with us, and if subtly we justify it as hidden. We confess that in kind or character, we can look just like the world around us. And just like Israel accepted Balak's temptations, we accept Satan's best. Thank you, Lord, that you haven't abandoned us. But that you're training, Trinity, what it means to be truly faithful. Thank you that you have not and cannot compromise your holiness. And we are so grateful and learning to be more grateful that our faith is a gift given, won, and sustained by you. Lord, help us to know what ground we've given up. For the sake of peace with our sin especially, keep us from thinking or living as though Satan is on the throne. And Spirit, remind us that we are children of the one and final conqueror. Please, Lord, help us to set our priorities straight, set our hearts right, cause us to repent, use the clean pain of this double-edged sword that we might live in your pleasure again. Jesus, nourish us with food that actually sustains, that's fit for those headed towards everlasting life. And remind us that by your name, we're free. Revive us, Lord. Amen.